Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for joining us this week. I think you're going to be glad you did. We have a great interview. Jasmine will be speaking with Michelle Graham, who is the executive director of the Wild Animal Initiative. And this is a really fascinating conversation about issues that we just don't confront often enough. I mean, of course, it makes sense, as we do, to talk about all the domesticated animals, especially the farmed animals who we mistreat in such horrifying ways, and we tend to focus on them. But it's also so important to think and care about what's going on in the ever-dwindling wild, not just the harms that we perpetrate, but all of the suffering that these animals can undergo, and just to have a vision for how is the best way to live on this planet in the best relationship possible with all of these amazing creatures. Right. Yes. I also really appreciated this conversation with Michelle because she is talking about wild animals and she's vegan and that and she has like a vegan ethic that she brings to her work. I think that's rare. <laughs> we talk a little bit about why that's rare and how what struggles she has, because she certainly has struggles. You know, there's a lot of big questions that can't be answered, but she has a refreshing approach. And I'm really excited about sharing that interview with you. And on this week's bonus segment, I'll be continuing my conversation with Michelle. So as always, if you're a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up. Or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And of course, uh, to help us get through the pandemic, which apparently is never going to end. No, I'm sorry. I didn't say that. But, you know, uh, it's getting bad. We're still doing our Flock Friday Zoom calls. I think we thought we wouldn't be doing them for this long, but here we are. And I'm so glad we are. They are at 4 p.m. Eastern time. Sometimes we have guests. Sometimes we just have a chat. We usually end up talking about how to shift our activism um, as well as how to take care of ourselves and maybe just maybe just catch up with each other a little bit. So if you're a member of the Flock, we would love to have you there. Check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. Actually, last week, I was really inspired because uh, we went around and we talked about different activists who inspire us, and that inspired me. <laughs> and then we kind of pulled out what qualities about those activists were inspiring, and we posted that to the Flock Facebook group. So a few of those are dedicated, resilient, real, unapologetic, humble, determined, optimistic, hardworking, creative, respectful, courageous. And we had some really cool conversations about like what it meant to start to embody some of these qualities ourselves. So I really enjoyed that. And before we get to today's interview with Michelle, you know, you and I were both kind of given a lot of thought from a recent post that Jay Schuster posted on Facebook. And Jay was actually on the Animal Law podcast recently. Yeah, very recently. He, he is a consumer protection lawyer. He's with the Richmond Law Group, and he does a lot of consumer protection work on behalf of animals. Mm -hmm. And so he wrote, I'm just going to read it and then we'll chat about it. He wrote, lukewarm take. Overall, it would be better if folks on the left expressed less anger. I think there's a place for a certain amount of anger. I think it can be useful for short-term mobilization in measured amounts. And when carefully directed, I think it can help persuade people to support you and motivate others to avoid opposing you. I also think that it is just inevitable for anyone that remotely grasps how cruel and unjust our society is. But I think we've excessively embraced and even celebrated anger as a positive good without nearly enough critical reflection on how it harms long-term organizing. 
The main harm that I think is overlooked is the effect that it has on ourselves as individual activists and as members of organizations and broader movements. At least from spending a decade in the animal rights movement, I have observed myself and others repeatedly taken in by activists whose trademark style is to unleash a brilliant fury of righteous indignation against an apparently deserving target, like a meat company. And then before long, the targets look less and less deserving and the anger starts hitting closer and closer to home, burning brighter and brighter, scorching other activists and themselves, leaving countless advocates burnt out from activism entirely. Again, none of that is to say that there's no place for anger and activism, but I think in order to wield it effectively, we all need to understand that it really is a matter of playing with fire. So I thought that was something that not a lot of people talk about. And you and I wound up in a sort of colorful, passionate conversation for quite a while. And we thought, well, we should we should pause and put this conversation on the podcast because, you know, anger is a anger is a funny thing. I agree in on a with a lot of what Jay is saying here in terms of the fact that like sometimes we just become angry and that leads us instead of like strategy and and like you know what our overall point is and it winds up being that we eat each other and which we're not supposed to do because we're vegan and vegans aren't supposed to eat animals and we're animals but uh aside from that I also feel like well we should be angry there's so much to be angry about and and it made me think of a while ago, like maybe 2012 or 13, when uh, I remember Miriam Jones of Vine Sanctuary was was calling the the next year the year of the angry vegan. And, and I remember thinking, you know, yeah, of course we're angry. There are animals being brutally murdered, like by the billions. And, and people are just acting like that's normal. That is reason to be angry. Anger is OK here. And and the fact that, like, I grew up as a little girl and as a little girl, I was not I was certainly not told to that it's OK to be angry. And then when I started feeling it, I started to, like, implode because that's how little girls are taught to deal with their anger and and self-harm and all of that. So anger is called for. And yet anger does not need to take over. It can be used productively and not just as sort of like this swirling force that justifies us, you know, eating our own, like I said. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't say I think very differently than you do. I think that uh, it may be perhaps only white men who feel entitled to be angry, <laughs> you know, who have felt entitled to be angry from when they were young. And even they don't handle it very well. And I think uh, you're exactly right when you brought up this little girl. Anger is not... It's not something that is considered productive for you. And so we may have an even harder time figuring out how to create this balance. But I think it is a balance because I think you're exactly right. It's the fuel for the fire of activism. And, you know, I think Jay is right that it can be dangerous. And, you know, it's like a fire. You set a fire and you're not always in control of who it consumes. And that anger can kind of take over and you can start lashing out at people who just think a little differently than you do, who who just aren't up to your standards in some way, and it can get carried away, it can consume you. And I think this country is is in a lot of trouble with, with anger, obviously. Like, people are angry, and I don't, half of the time, we don't even understand what they're angry about or what we're angry about. It's just kind of taken over. I don't want to let it go, though, because I think you're right. You know, it's it's the fuel, but... That fire can get really out of control. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't mean this 
about Jay at all. Because, by the way, Jay, if you're listening to this, thank you for giving us the entire subject of our top of the show today, because it was really moving and you're very... You're, you're just a thoughtful communicator, and I appreciate the way you articulated this very much. And I think a lot of, you know, women in particular, while I'll speak for myself, can also get a little bit, like, ooh, uncomfortable, especially when, like, there's, like, a man in particular saying, let's not be angry. And I don't think that's what Jay is saying here at all, so I guess I just want to clarify that, that, like, I did have a knee-jerk. Like, this makes me angry. <laughs> but <laughs> at the same time, like, when I look deeper, I realize that's ironic. And that's not the point. So I have that knee jerk thing for sure. You know, like just being sort of invalidated for so long by society, a society that didn't want like someone like me to take up to take up the space that I take up. And they don't want the animals and the animal rights message to take up any space at all. It's a lot more convenient to like not take that up. And all of that makes me angry. But we have to also look at those qualities of what I mentioned earlier that our flock talked about when we were talking about like activists we admire. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of those activists that we that we spoke about were angry at, you know, the world because that's what made them become activists. And yet anger is not the quality that that any of us pulled out as why we admire them. In fact, gentleness and respect and like compassion and kindness and like you know, patience and level-headedness. These were a lot of the reasons why these particular activists touched us and moved us and were so effective in what they did. So where does that leave our anger? I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't think this conversation ends with us having an answer to this. I think it's just a matter... And one thing I was thinking as you were talking, because I think this is something you mentioned when we spoke before, is that, you know, just keeping the animals... Uh, in the forefront of our heads and just always thinking what is best for them. I mean, we don't always know what is best for them, but if we feel anger really being a destructive force in our activism, then maybe it's time to take a look. Right. Or switch up what we're doing or because it's also about our own longevity and our own sanity in the, in the movement, whatever the movement means to you. Anyway, let's talk about food because if there's any way that I deal with anger productively, it's through eating. (laughs) (laughs) I had the best thing for breakfast today. I had that just egg folded vegan egg, which is available like everywhere. And you can put it in the toaster and it tastes like a omelet, but without the oppressive nature of eggs. And gosh, I loved it. I don't love just egg. I like it, but I don't love it. And I've never been a huge egg eater. The liquid that comes in the in the plastic bottle. But this just egg folded vegan egg is so good. It's amazing. So what just egg is doing is extraordinary. And then I read this story about what's going on in China. And, you know, just egg has been in China for a while. And so recently, one of China's top fast food chains, it's named Dicos. I guess it could be Dicos. They added the vegan just egg to their menu. They have 500 locations just egg is now featured as part of three breakfast burgers, three bagel sandwiches, and a Western breakfast plate. And they are, this is the thing that just blew me away. They're replacing its animal derived chicken eggs with the vegan egg, like replacing them. Unbelievable. They're swapping out eggs for the just egg. And I got this from a, a Veg News article, uh, which kind of laid out the whole story. So, like, talk about kicking ass. <laughs> oh my God. Didn't you see something, too, at, uh, this isn't about Just Egg, but, or maybe it is. What was it about Dunkin' Donuts? 
Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, th- this is so funny that you should say that because, you know, we're taking the pandemic very seriously and we don't really go anywhere. We do curbside pickup and and uh, anyway. So one of the things that I enjoy doing is going to Dunkin' Donuts drive through for an oat milk latte where like it's right by my uh, house and you would be shocked at how much enjoyment I get out of going. I never would have thought that that would have been so me. so many little things that we enjoy so much now. Yeah, I know, right? So I, I go and sometimes I'll get the Beyond slider with no with no cheese and no egg. So it's just basically the Beyond patty on an English muffin. If I make it home before eating it, I will maybe add my own vegan cheese to it. But otherwise, I'll just eat it as is and I quite enjoy it. It's just for a little sometimes thing. And I like the oat milk latte. Yum. Anyway, so finally it occurred to me that I should get the app, like the Dunkin' Donuts app, because you could order in advance and it all goes a lot uh, more quickly. And so I got the Dunkin' Donuts app and there's a point system on it. And you get double the points for anything you get that is plant-based. That is heavily, heavily advertised on the Dunkin' Donuts app is, is that you get double the points. It's kind of amazing. Like, I just think these companies really want this to happen. I mean, think of just the, like the refrigeration, like, like just it's so much easier for them to sell plant based foods. Oh, yeah. And, and speaking of which, so I mentioned that I have been getting the curbside pickup and usually it's at Hannaford's, which is a grocery store that is near us. And well, it's, it's not actually near us at all because I have to drive 52 minutes to do, go to the one that has the curbside. But I digress. And one of the things that I enjoy getting is the so delicious salted caramel cashew milk based ice cream. And they are almost always out like every now and then, every now and then I'll get it. So they, you know, when you get curbside, it says, hey, do you want any any substitutions? And usually I click no, because I'm afraid that they'll make a non-vegan substitution. But you can review the substitutions. And so I clicked yes one day. Anyway, the house brand at Hannaford's, which is called Nature's Promise, has created a cashew milk salted caramel vegan ice cream, which is like exactly like the So Delicious one. I don't know who is distributing it or who's making it, I should say. But it is they gave it to me when they were out of the So Delicious last time. I swear I'm responsible for this. I swear they were like, okay, somebody keeps ordering (laughs) the So Delicious. I I think I was responsible for it. (laughs) But I was like, I, you know, I I was like, oh, sure, I'll take the house brand. I'm like eating it later that day. And I was like, I had a moment. I'm like, what is happening right now? Like I'm eating house brand cashew milk salted caramel ice cream what yeah and for those of you who are from i don't really know how big a chain hannaford is i think it's just in the northeast but it's just a regular grocery store you know like there's nothing fancy pants about it i mean it's a nice regular grocery store but really big. and i skipped one story i'm going back to just egg because you probably all heard this but i just don't want to be talking about just egg without saying or talking about the unbelievable story that came out of singapore uh, a week or two ago. And, and you know, a long time ago, Josh Tetrick, who, of course, founded uh, Just, he said that they were going to be the first with cell-based meat. Mm-hmm. And um, I think everybody thought, what? Because there were a lot of other people doing it at the time, and nobody really knew that he was even, or they were even doing it. And they just got, you know, of course, you probably have heard the authorization from Singapore to sell it there, and there is actually on the market in Singapore, I think it's their chicken, but they're expanding to other products as well. So, wow, things are moving. Yeah, things are moving. There's a lot to discuss, and I am really excited about our guest today. Should we 
Should we talk to her now? Yeah, absolutely. Michelle Graham is the executive director of Wild Animal Initiative, which is a nonprofit that aims to understand and improve the lives of wild animals. She studied physics and philosophy at the University of Oxford. And is currently, this is so crazy, she's currently working toward a PhD in engineering mechanics at Virginia Tech, studying the locomotion of flying snakes. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> in addition to her research, though, and more the topic of our conversation today, Michelle has worked with animals in shelter, veterinary, farm, and zoo environments, and she has given a lot of thought to our responsibilities to animals, and she'll be joining Jasmine right after this. Greetings, everybody. This is Jasmine Singer, and I wanted to make sure you knew about my new book, The Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan. Look good, feel good, and do good in 30 days. Want to be fabulous? Go vegan. Maybe you're interested in it for the food, maybe it's the animals, or maybe climate change has got you thinking. Whatever your reason, maybe you don't quite know where to start. After all, doesn't going vegan mean you have to give up tasty snacks and cool shoes and a sense of humor in your leather couch? Nope, nope, no way. And well, eventually. Covering everything from nutrition, you will get enough protein, promise, to dating, vegans have better sex, it's true. To fitness, you want to lift a car over your head? Sure. I am joining with the team at Veg News to bust all the myths and giving you all the facts about a plant-based lifestyle. With 30 easy recipes to get you started, the Veg News Guide to Being a Fabulous Vegan will help you adopt a vegan lifestyle that's better for you, the animals, and the planet. And what's more fabulous than that? Get your copy today wherever books are sold, or go to jasminesinger.com fabulous. Remember, there's no E on Jasmine. It's J-A-S-M-I-N-S-I-N-G-E-R.com fabulous the veg news guide to being a fabulous vegan welcome to our hen house michelle hi i'm so happy to be here I'm really excited to chat with you. I've been looking forward to this interview for a while. You're going to be talking with me about something that we don't discuss enough on our hen house. And I have been lucky enough to be working with you at Encompass uh, on your incredible essay for the Encompass Essays. And I've had the pleasure of getting to know a little bit more about you and your process and and also the Wild Animal Initiative. So let's start with that. Can you tell us about the Wild Animal Initiative? What, what is the mission and, and who is a part of it? Yeah, so, so the initiative's mission is to research and understand the lives of wild animals so that we can ultimately do things to improve their welfare. And we're a pretty small organization right now. We've got a core research team, myself as the executive director, Cameron Meyer-Shorb as the deputy director, and uh, a couple of uh, operations and development people. But overall, we're, we're really focused on generating research and a research field around the many unanswered questions that exist about the welfare of animals living in the wild. Mm-hmm. There are so many unanswered questions. And there's a whole other layer, you know, to the mix when we're coming at it from like the perspective of animal liberation. I think a lot of animal advocates tend to think that our responsibility is to those animals whom humans are actually harming, like the wild, other than those harms to animals that are actually caused by humans, such as hunting, is beyond our control. And we just have to accept it as nature. Is that wrong? And why? 
Yeah, I mean, I definitely have a lot of sympathy with that perspective. And I, I don't know if I want to go as far to say it's wrong. But the thing that I try to think about is the perspective of the animal. And I think this is something that honestly, like the perspective of animal liberation has sort of taught me to do. And, you know, in my personal life, I am a vegan and I started out vegetarian very young age as someone who's worried about the what th things humans do to animals. And I can't speak for other cultures, but I know that in my culture, like American, white, you know, European sort of descended culture, like the focus on, on stopping bad things that you do, like the intent is like very strong. But thinking about the perspective of the animal from being within like the animal liberation movement, trying to put myself in the shoes of animals, that makes me wonder, does, it, does a wild animal, let's say a, a wild squirrel, care as much about dying by disease as it does by be dying by being hit by a car? And, mm. you know, I can't answer that, but I'd love to look into it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think that so much of the answers are in the conversation about what <laughs> about what the answers could possibly be. With that said, what kind of research can help us understand how we can help wild animals in, in a responsible way? Yeah. So I think, you know, when you think about the resources that advocates for human well-being have at, at their fingertips. So, you know, consider someone who wants to work in, say, global health and wants to improve the well-being of, of humans dying from diseases in, around the world. They have access to data about things like the primary cause of death in a particular country or a particular demographic group. They have access to information about, well, if you cure that disease, what would happen afterwards? They have information about the complex cultural and societal factors that interweave different groups of people with each other so you can make those kinds of predictions. And this is data that we have to some extent in some places for wild animals, but really are lacking uh, in, a, in a wide variety of ways, the, the level of detail that you would want if you're thinking, all right, I care about wild animals. I care about, you know, it, there's so many different things that are happening that affect their welfare, some of which, you know, a ton of which are human caused, a ton of which are not. And I, I don't know how to prioritize. Well, I need that kind of data. So that's like one kind of thing that research into wild animal welfare can provide us with is just this pure raw data about what's happening to animals in the wild so that we can understand what kinds of activities to prioritize and work on. Mm. And do, do you feel like we have a moral obligation to help wild animals, even though humans may not have caused the harms? I definitely do personally. And I think that the kind of you know, thought experiment, I guess I would encourage people to do to think about how they would feel about this situation would be, you know, clearly if I walk by some people in a, a landslide, that landslide might have been perfectly natural. You know, obviously with climate change, it's hard to say what kinds of natural disasters are right. natural anymore. But mm -hmm. at some point, you know, landslides just occur. And yet I still feel like I have a moral obligation seeing that person in the landslide to help them. And I think I just try to apply the exact same reasoning to animals. And of course, the situation is a bit more complicated because, you know, there's lots of things we do with humans that are unnatural, like in some sense, like giving vaccines, which we think of as being really good for our welfare. Uh, but obviously we can get consent. And that is something that is complicated with animals is understanding how to negotiate it. But the animals don't necessarily consent to not getting the vaccine either. So you're in this stuck case of, of trying to do your best to, to guess at what the animal would want. 
Mm-hmm. You're making me think of some Peter Singer books that I read a long time ago. I mean, they're not exactly fresh in my head, but I do remember him talking about like, if you pass a drowning child, would you help that child? And if the answer is yes, of course I would, then what, how do we extend that to how we go about our day to day? Because that, you know, there, there is that brand of horrible situations going on for children and obviously for animals, obviously Peter Singer of no relation to me, sadly, is like (laughs) one of the grandparents of the animal rights movement, but. Yeah. And I think our, our ethical stances at Wild Animal Initiative definitely draw from that heritage of thinking about just trying to say these horrible things are happening. Many of them caused by humans definitely care about those, but many not. And I think I wouldn't want someone to, to look at Wild Animal Initiative and say, oh, they only work on the things that aren't caused by humans. We definitely mm-hmm. care about the stuff caused by humans, too. But we're just trying to take a holistic uh, attitude of looking at all the different kinds of things that affect wild animal welfare and figuring out what we can do about them. And, and then of course, there's the further question of if you start doing something, are you going to pot- potentially have unexpected side effects? And that's another really interesting set of research questions. Mm-hmm. Well, and on that note, for so long, our view of wild animals ha- has been focused on protecting species. How, how does one's approach to these questions differ when one is looking at wild animals as individuals? Yeah, I think we actually have some great data about some species. Like I was mentioning earlier, there's, there's, there's piecemeal data about cause of death. And a lot of that comes from focuses on endangered animals, where understanding the cause of death of a particular species that's that's on its path to extinction can help avert that, that extinction. But we don't have that data for juvenile animals because they're really small and hard to measure, and we don't have it for really common animals like squirrels. And I think, you know, people will differ in their philosophical values about how you weight one species against another. And there's there's complex relationships where extinctions tend to have knock-on effects in their ecosystems that can affect mm-hmm. animals beyond that one species. But certainly, you know, trying to take as anti-speciesist approach as possible, where I'm not valuing, say, a tiger over a squirrel just because it is a tiger and because I, as a human, find tigers aesthetically pleasing. Mm-hmm. That really says, like, well, then why has so much like of our resources poured into understanding a few species when there's so many individuals in these other more common species that aren't well understood. Right. We could be doing things to help. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good point. Uh, It makes me think about losing a species, having a particular species go extinct. Do you think that that is a harm in and of itself or is it only a harm for its implications for those who remain? Yeah, I I think that's a hard question. I mean, I definitely think from the point of view of, like, let's just take ecosystems as things that provide services to the to the animals of people that live in them. If, if, if you were to say that, then you could say that an, an animal going extinct in that ecosystem certainly will have effects on that ecosystem. It could make it more unstable. And so that, that would be more to the, to the second, you know, mindset you described of, of like only matters because of what happens to those who remain. I think, you know, I really value every species that's ever existed on our planet as a a piece of fascinating science and art almost and beauty and and a wealth of knowledge to learn from. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, it's not clear how you weigh that against like welfare. 
You know, right. if I if I have a Picasso painting and I have to destroy it to save someone's life, would I do that? Like, pro- probably. Right. <laughs> so it's really hard, you know, it, but that's not to underweight the beauty of a Picasso. You know, I think the problem is that we just experience such deep trade-offs in our life where things that really, really matter sometimes have to be pitted against things that matter mm-hmm. a ton. <laughs> Isn't that like adulting in a nutshell? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Like you just said, like I, I feel like that was such a missing piece for my in my youth, like understanding that that is what it means to be a responsible human, like making the pitting pitting a two things against each other, and maybe one is not totally right and one is not totally wrong, but it's a trade off. Yeah. So for now, we're focused on building a self sustaining research community that can inform what actions are actually responsible and scalable. Is that right? Yeah, and I think we have some. So, so, so here's the problems to doing a scalable activities for animals in the wild, um, and and I would say that these aren't only problems for for people who care about wild animal welfare. I think they're problems for for everyone, and they have give, been given way too little attention, but. In general, when you do something that's going to improve or change a large number of lives, that's going to have unexpected consequences. And I think this happens in the field of of work to improve human welfare all the time. You know, what if you cure some disease and that massively changes the number of humans that exist? Well, we know that the number of humans that exist has a big effect on all the other animals on the planet and on things like you know, how likely it is for a, a new disease to emerge. And, and so there's there's all kinds of these kinds of consequences that, that often are not taken into account in a lot of detail for, for by anybody, really, because people, like, it's very common to focus on your problem and fix your problem and not consider the system-level consequences. Right. But I think that's something we really care about at Wild Animal Initiative is systems-level consequences. So I think there are things you can do to research how to improve our understanding of system level consequences. And that's a long-term project that we definitely want to see, see happening in, in academia and among researchers. But then there's also things that we can maybe do more quickly, which are to identify systems and projects in which there are fewer of these Mm -hmm. complex interlocking effects that allow us to be more confident about what the results of our actions will be. Well, it is clear that we have a moral obligation to help wild animals. I think that uh, people listening to this would all agree with that. How can you be sure when dealing with the wild that you're not doing more harm than good? Yeah, and I think this is a really reasonable like objection, especially given how often humans have tried to mess around in nature and, and done something like irretrievably bad. Yeah, I think I would say that the majority of the time, people were messing around in nature not for the benefit of wild animals. So we don't actually have that much data that when you try to improve wild animal welfare, it's it's doomed to failure. We have we have evidence that like when you do things solely for human benefit, you can have really bad unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. But some things I would say for like how can you make sure you're not doing more harm than good? It's 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 choosing scenarios. Well, one, it's, it's like I said, improving our understanding of systems levels effects so we can predict what's going to happen. It's two, choosing in the meantime, choosing scenarios that have fewer of these unintended consequences that are likely to occur. And then, you know, in the, in what that could look like is like, let's take a particular animal that we want to do something for. And if we can choose some kind of activity that doesn't change the number of individuals that live or die or affect the population structure and just changes a particular like harm that's occurring to them, 
that can have fewer unanticipated side effects. And so, so like one particular example would be if you choose to change, like there's all kinds of, of animal populations in which humans will kill animals for various reasons, you know, obviously in, the, in farming, but also in the wild. Uh, right. so for example, in Philadelphia, where I live, there's annual culling of white-tailed deer, and that's to keep the population down. And there, there seem to be some beneficial, I, I don't know how you would frame this, effects that seem somewhat good for the deer that remain, and that, like, when there's less population, there are fewer, like, there's, like, less likely to be hit by cars because mm-hmm. there's just, they're not as crowded. But wouldn't it be great if we could accomplish that with like a reproductive control instead of a lethal control mechanism. And then the question becomes, well, how, how does uh, using some kind of reproductive control method on deer affect their welfare? And I think, you know, it's totally fair for some people to say, I'm not comfortable with that because the deer can't consent to receiving some kind of drug like that would reduce their fertility. But this is going to happen anyway and if we can offer something that is higher welfare and doesn't necessarily change the overall population structure, then you might end up saying this is a net positive for welfare and won't have any of these unintended consequences because this population reduction is kind of happening anyway. And so we can be reasonably confident that like this change is for the good. Right. Well, you're you're sort of answering my next question, which is what possible interventions exist right now that could be implemented while understanding the need for this caution. But w- what comes to mind for me is pigeons. Am I off here? No, definitely pigeons are another one where they are already undergoing lethal control, uh, being killed by humans, I should say, in a variety of locations, urban environments where they're considered a nuisance. And there is a reproductive, like fertility reduction drug on the market that's available for pigeons. And I think that's a case where there are still unanswered research questions and we're actively trying to investigate those now at Wild Animal Initiative, but we're in a much shorter timescale to where we would be prepared to like endorse using a reproductive method to control pigeon populations instead of killing them. And I think the kinds of questions we still have are just what are the effects of this drug on the welfare of pigeons? Because there have been some studies of this drug in use, but not in a wild context. And what does happen to to the population structure over time? And does that affect other animals at all? So just to illustrate what I mean here, if you're applying a poison to kill pigeons, it's possible, say, that the adults and juveniles would eat that poison at the same rates. And so you would not have any changes to the the age structure of the population. But if you give a fertility control method, you might end up with fewer juveniles and more adults, which, which honestly could be a good thing for the pigeons, because then the pigeon adults are having to take care of fewer young and have more resources to go around. But we would want to like actually address that and it with research and demonstrate whether or not it seems to be good for pigeons. And then if it doesn't seem to be good for pigeons, then you have this, this cost-benefit analysis where like, okay, maybe it has some costs, but are those costs really worse than poisoning them? And then beyond pigeons, if there's fewer juvenile pigeons, are there animals who are eating those pigeons who now will not have their food source? And will they have an alternative food source so it doesn't matter as much, or will they not? And then there are these, all these unexpected side effects you'd have to look into. Well, how can we begin to develop more interventions that could be implemented in a safe way? Because it seems like everything is kind of rot and it's difficult to figure out how to develop these interventions in a way that doesn't 
create a lot of destruction on the path to what could be considered better. Yeah, I guess, you know, I think if you look at human history, this path has been kind of tracked a little bit where, you know, there's lots of things that when we started out on the research pathway, you could see all, you know, if you had the knowledge we have now, you could say, oh, well, they're going to, they're going to do this experiment with, you know, the the industrial revolution could be viewed as an experiment that we didn't really know what was going to happen at the end of it. And uh, we learned a lot about what the costs and benefits are of, of, of industrializing, for example. Um, and I, so, you know, obviously want to do better than that <laughs> in terms of like predicting in advance what will happen rather than treading blindly into the night. But there are certain kinds of activities we could do, like small-scale studies on an island of particular ideas that we implement in a contained way and see what happens and then, you know, build out from there as things are going going well or stop going from there if they're not going well. Um, and I think there's a lot of this baseline data collection about what's going on in in the wild will help inform what kinds of activities should really be pursued. And in the meantime, there is lots of stuff that humans are doing to wild animals that we could very clearly do in a better way that would then not have as many of these, these fraught and complex consequences that are much easier to recommend sooner. So, I mean, one example would just be we fish wild fish huge numbers of fish are killed by humans for consumption in the wild. It seems like the vast majority of these fish are caught and, you know, basically allowed to asphyxiate to death. And that seems reasonably likely to be a particularly bad way of dying. And, you know, although my uh, hope would be that we don't, you know, need to eat fish at all, if that's going to be happening, let's at least kill them a little sooner. Like, uh, Probably certain kinds of, of ways of of, uh, of uh, doing that are going to have be less awful for the animal to experience than other ways. And if we could just get some data on that, and again, this is data that we probably wouldn't need to harm more fish to acquire because the fishing industry already has data on these kinds of things, and we can just survey that literature to try to understand better what's possible. And are there academics pursuing such research? There are. Um, I am not totally familiar with that literature right off the top of my head and who that would be, but I have seen a couple of workshops advertised for academics who are interested in, in fish welfare. And in general, like fish welfare has, has been so neglected in part because like, we're still trying to convince some people that like fish can feel pain. Like there's still like some degree of scientific not like not being having consensus on that, which I find strange. Yeah, it's so strange. <laughs> I, I have this this like habit of you know when people say, oh yeah, I'm vegan. Well, I'm vegetarian. Well, I mean, I'm pescatarian. And and then I'm always like, yeah, you know what? Fuck the fish. Just fuck the fish. <laughs> That's how I reply to that. People are always like, okay, I'm not going to hang out with you again. Whatever. <laughs> okay, yeah, so I mean- I'm, yeah, go ahead. I just, like, it's just, it, there are some scientific differences in the brains of fish and mammals that, like, there's an area in mammals that we know where, like, pain is processed that fish don't have. And it, but, like, we know, we all kind of agree that birds can feel pain and they also have very different brains that, like, seem to have a different pathway toward experiencing pain than humans do. And also this concept of convergent evolution where, like, different thing, the same 
outcome can evolve from the different pathways is well understood in science. So just like to be so quick to say, well, your brain is different, so you can't feel pain. is really problematic to my mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's how we, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but obviously needless to say, it's how we've justified all kinds of torture and cruelty to marginalized communities. Like it, it sort of blows my mind where we draw lines. Yeah. <laughs> It's just so startling to me, even though I've been, you know, working in the animal rights movement for 17 years and I just don't, I just don't get it, Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> How do you encourage more research? I, I mean, obviously I think that's something that, that we need. I'd love to know your, your thoughts on that as well as like any kind of research programs that you have like funded or an- anticipate funding. Yeah. So at the moment, we do not provide funding directly to academics, although that is definitely a pathway by which to get research done. Academics like money to do their work. (laughs) So I think the thing that's nice about wild animal welfare is that even if a scientist is not like wholeheartedly behind the movement, these questions are like deeply intellectually interesting. And I can say that as someone who's doing a PhD in a biology adjacent discipline, there's PhD researchers and people who are in academia on our staff. We have an advisory panel of academics uh, and, and other researchers who kind of help peer review our work or make recommendations about work we're looking into. Uh, and some academics are on our board as well. So we're, we're pretty conversant with the academic science community. And I think what's exciting about wild animal welfare work is that basically what makes something intellectually interesting to a scientist tends to be like, has it been done before? And what do we know already about it? And what impacts could it have? And this is, we definitely score really well on those criteria, right? Like there's clear like public interest in aspects of this work. There's clearly neglected areas of work where there are interesting like research avenues to pursue to, to, to get this, this done. And so I think in the long term, our goal is essentially to create a network of people who are excited about investigating these ideas and making sure that Wild Animal Initiative serves as a resource to connect those ideas and those, that research that's getting done to the people who can, who can take action and, and implement the results. But to, to answer your question specifically, how do we, how do we get that to happen? And I think the answer is providing a pathway for researchers to get money to do the work and then be able to talk about the results. So basically in a scientific career, you need money to do your research and you need a place to publish your results so that you can get credit for what you did. <laughs> I mean, that's, I would, that's a little simplistic, but it, you know, for example, if you're trying to get tenure, your publication record is one of the really important things that it gets considered. And I think a challenge with wild animal welfare research is that it's really interdisciplinary. And despite recent emphasis in, by like, for example, the National Science Foundation on integrative research, it's still hard to sometimes sell a piece of really integrative work to a journal that's going to publish it because they might be like, oh, that looks like a biology thing and we're an ecology thing or something. So I think what we're trying to do right now is gather our academic collaborators through channels like our advisory panel, where we're kind of bringing people from these many disparate disciplines into the conversation, and then identify funding opportunities by applying to them ourselves or working with collaborators to try to apply to them. And these are from the mainstream scientific community. So like it might be an NSF grant, it might be a National Institute of Health grant, it might be a grant from the Morris Animal Foundation. These are different groups that that provide funding already for scientific work, often related to biology, ecology, or animals in some way or another. 
and, and identifying where they can get that funding from. And then the next step will be identifying where this work can be published and then serving to, to keep that information moving throughout the community so people are interested in doing this work, have everything they need to get it done. Well, I so you brought up your PhD that you're currently working toward, and I understand that it's in engineering mechanics. I'd like to go back to that. How does that relate to animals, assuming it does? Um, it does and it doesn't, I will say. So I would say, well... So engineering mechanics is uh, a kind of a funky discipline. There aren't that many departments that do it anymore. It's, it's basically the, f- the physics that you would use to do engineering. <laughs> so there's like a fluid mechanics section and a solid mechanics section. It's like the mechan- you know, understanding the physics of materials. But one aspect of it is the, the mechanics of locomotion. So that's where I started. And I started researching the locomotion of flying snakes as my PhD project. So it relates to animals in that I'm trying to understand a particular animal's strategy for locomotion from a mechanical point of view. But when I started, I, you know, I kind of had separated my career and personal life where my career was very focused on physics and my personal life was very, you know, I felt like I was an animal advocate, but I somehow hadn't made these connections. And when I started my, my PhD, I was really thinking, oh, this is cool because I get to combine my physics part of my brain with my liking of animals part of my brain. Not really recognizing that I would then be like studying animals. Right. Which at the time I kind of justified for myself by saying, I'm just studying their natural locomotor behaviors. I'm not doing anything invasive. But I kind of rapidly realized that it's very hard to do research on animals in a way that is ethical. And this is something that we really confront a lot at Wild Animal Initiative because mm-hmm. the, the the structures, like people do research on humans and it's often ethical in part because you're able to obtain consent, but also because things have been designed over years and mistakes we've made in the past where unethical research on humans has taken place and that we've kind of corrected. And while there are institutions that, that kind of, there's this thing called the Institutional Animal Care and Use Committee that every federally funded organization has to, have that assesses whether a project you want to do is is justified like the harm you're going to do to animals in that project is justified by the research results but the the like criteria and 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 everything is way less stringent than what we apply to humans and so i'm in the situation where i'm just studying this completely natural behavior that flying snakes do but to do that i have to like put little paint markers on their body in order so that when i take a video of them i can i can track the same location over time well, a snake does not like being held still to be painted with markers. Right. <laughs> and I don't know how much harm I'm doing when I do that. It could, you know, it's, it's short. I try to be as gentle and fast as I can. And I, and, you know, I don't actually do this anymore because I've been, I've confronted the fact that I don't think I can do it ethically. But when I first started, I kind of thought I'm doing this as quickly as I can and gently as possible. It doesn't seem that bad. But as I went through my PhD, I realized that I didn't really know what bothered the snake. And it was really anthropomorphic of me to assume that because I would find this like not that bad, it's like having my toenails painted, the snake would would find it not that bad. And that's what got me interested in, in understanding wild animal welfare better is understanding how little we actually knew. That got me really interested in this work. And that's actually how I ended up at Wild Animal Initiative because of my work here, making me really confront in my PhD how uncomfortable I was with what I was doing and then wanting to make a change for the better. Wow, that's such a interesting trajectory. You know, I know that the farmed animal welfare community, which 
really hardly existed 20 years ago now is at the center of animal welfare. So for you to kind of like be piecing that together and, and like, it's, it's funny to me that you chose this path that there's no right, there's just no right answer to like you, you want to do this work and can you do it ethically? That'll just be like the lifelong conundrum. But I, I mean, given the fact that the farm animal welfare community is, I, I mean, dare I say sort of robust, it's it's all relative, but it's a whole lot more robust than it was 20 years ago. How, how do you feel that people working in, in these fields of farmed animal welfare and wild animal welfare can work together to benefit all of these animals? Yeah. I mean, I think in general, there are so many areas of interesting overlap that there, there could be a lot of, of shared value here. Um, I think one thing is, is that systems approach I was talking about is really exciting, not just for wild animal welfare, but for farmed animal welfare uh, too. And for people who care about animals but are working in farmed animal advocacy, what, what happens when the vegans win, you know, what happens when we win, right? Like what right. if we get the agriculture on uh, animals essentially banned? Huge swaths of land in our world is dedicated to agriculture. How will that land use change? What do we do with it? You know, and these might be like very pie in the sky questions for now, but understanding how the changes that we're advocating for, for farmed animals will have impacts on, on, you know, the farmed animals that, that remain. So, are, you know, if, if animals are still living, like let's, you know, what happens if we stop eating beef? What happens to all the cows that exist? And then also wild animals who will be affected by those changes in land use. You know, I think those are, those are complex system level effects that, that we should be thinking about. Maybe you don't need to have your plan written down right now, but I want, you know, I, I think it'd be great if they were still on some people's minds. But I think there's another, some other really exciting things are just how do we measure welfare? So, you know, my the questions I was facing in doing my PhD research on snakes, if we had clear, like a, a, a clear ability to measure the well-being of animals, and I could, I could do a test that showed how much harm I was inflicting on, on the snake for a given piece of work, and then understand whether it was worth it, I think, you know, probably for what I'm doing, the answer is, it's never worth it. But if you were doing, say, a study to prevent a particular kind of disease in a snake or something, that has potentially really good consequences for that species. And you need to you need to know if it's worth it or not. And I think measuring welfare is really important. And that's really true in the farm animal context, too, because animals are different from us. If I want to advocate for a particular change to the way we raise hens, and it turns out that I was wrong in my assessment of what the hens would like better that could be a really bad outcome. So I think that measuring welfare is another thing that, that is really important to, to animal advocates of, of, of every stripe. And I think working together on these kinds of, on the kind of research that is valuable to, to all of us uh, is a really promising like collaboration between wild animal and farmed animal welfare cause areas. Right. Yeah, I, I think that there's hope there and, and there's opportunities for working together, even though this is difficult stuff, especially because when you're talking about farm animal welfare, the ethically consistent thing to do is to go vegan and to like make that the sort of centerpiece of our advocacy, but it's not as simple when you're talking about wild animal welfare. So I think that maybe, maybe, I mean, this is your field and not mine, so I don't want to speak out of turn, but I, I think that maybe there can be answers that 
one community offers to the other and, and vice versa as far as how to move forward consistently and as ethically as possible. Yeah. And I think, you know, you know, to some extent, you've got an easier moral picture to paint in farmed animal welfare. And yeah. this is what I definitely endorse of like, we're doing something awful to animals. Let's stop doing it. Right. <laughs> that is very clear. But the question then becomes, is that enough? You know, because the same questions arise in wild animal welfare, where we're doing horrible things to wild animals. We should definitely stop doing that. But then what? Is is leaving something alone always the best you can aim for? Or can you go beyond that? And I think that's a question that, like, we need to be having iteratively as this research develops and as our technological capabilities develop. We will have more options for things we can do that are more than leaving animals alone. They're helping animals. And you know, we'll always face the issue of we can't necessarily get their consent to help them, Mm -hmm. but we also don't have their consent not to help them. So we're a little stuck. (laughs) And how you, how you deal with that, I think is, I, I don't want to be making that decision alone. I don't have a necessarily perfect recommendation for that. I think we as a community Mm -hmm. need to have these conversations and and figure out those answers. I mean, and forgive me for oversimplifying, but in its most basic form, it's like, well, I have a cat. I mean, I have a cat and that's kind of inherently a, a, a problem, even though I think that we get a lot out of each other at, at the moment, but it is probably not the way it should have been for us to have a cat and never mind the whole cat food conundrum yeah. for humans. But it, it's sort of like the lesser of two evils. Another lesser of two evils is that that we spay and neuter our, our dogs and cats when like that is sort of a, a, a deep disrespect of their autonomy and their it's an exploitation of their sexual reproductive organs. But it's the, the least harm given the world we're in. Yeah. And I think there's there's more that science can offer us here. And I think this is just a neglected part of scientific activity in general is that, you know, we've developed a lot about preference experiments that are, you can do them really non-invasively. I was speaking to someone, I think at NYU, who did a really interesting study where they, they just monitored like video data of manatees in two particular contexts and showed where the manatees like were clearly congregating around some particular aspect, you know, and and that kind of tells you something like the manatees have the freedom to be in spot A or spot B and spot B has character, has a particular characteristic and and they're choosing to go to spot B. Well, probably that's what they want. And I think that, you know, there could be even more we could do to understand both like what animals would choose. And then, you know, as we know in humans, we don't always choose what's best for us. So also what is like highest for their their health and physical well-being and maybe even their mental well-being and and try to at least make these kinds of decisions in a more informed way even if we can never reach the level of of being able to communicate as well as we wish. Well, and as hard as things are for many animals living in the wild right now, it it seems inevitable that it, it will become so much harder as climate change expands. Is much of your work or or the work you hope to do centered around this? Yeah, I, we haven't centered climate change as much in part, I would say for three reasons. One is that we just don't currently have someone who's a specialist in climate-related activities on staff. Two is that climate change research relative to, I wouldn't say it gets as much research as it needs relative to its importance, but it does get us like way more research than some of the other kinds of questions that that we're investigating or that we, we have prioritized investigating. And then, 
and and it, it's another one where there's so many like talk about complex system levels effects <laughs> like different strategies for for helping with climate change can affect animals humans all differently and so i think that the fact that that that, that it's so complicated makes it a hard thing to target for anything in the near term that we would do. That being said, one of the members of our advisory panel is a climate scientist, and we have spoken about trying to understand better what the actual outcomes for wild animals will be through climate change so that we can identify what opportunities we have to, to do some, to do things for wild animals. And I think that I wouldn't be surprised if if researchers who were excited about interpreting climate science from the point of view of wild animal welfare were people we were working with closely in the, in the near future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a I mean, speaking of the overlaps between farm animal welfare and wild animal welfare, like it, it does kind of all sort of come to a head with climate change and the implications of it for wild animals due to the exploitation of farmed animals. So there's a lot there to explore as well. And I've, I've kept you for so long, by the way, I hope that you stay on the line with me for our bonus content because I do have a few more questions for our flock. But before you go, I'd love to talk about the work that you've done, spearheading efforts to bring diversity, equity, and inclusion into your work. I, um, obviously, this is where we met, and and here we are. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why you think it is so important? Not not only because it's the right thing to do, but also for the quality of the work. Yeah, I mean, I I've really focused on thinking about why it's the right thing to do because I think it. <laughs> Sometimes some kinds of people get excited about poking holes in arguments about why diversity, equity, inclusion will will lead to, to better outcomes for us, any particular project or work activity. And so, I, you know, I try to sometimes avoid that whole conversation by simply being like, look, it's the right thing to do. The right. same way, you know, me getting up in the morning and eating my breakfast might not directly contribute to wild animal welfare, but it's just like necessary. Like I just have to do that to function. But I think the, the thing I focused on in my piece is the fact that like I am not only a wild animal welfare advocate. I'm not only an animal advocate. I'm not only any one thing. I care about realizing the best possible world that is pos- like that we can achieve. And I think that that world does not have racism in it, you know? And I, I think it's just, it would be wrongheaded not to recognize the, the deeply interactive effects that that my organization and my position of leadership as a white person in America running an organization, I have responsibilities to my society as well as responsibilities to wild animal welfare. And I think I just, it's really important to me to fulfill all of those. I totally agree. (laughs) And it's funny when you were saying that you made me think of Marianne and she would frequently, if people want to, as you said, poke holes in, in her veganism, which isn't really possible in my opinion, because it is to me there are no holes to poke. But if someone's just like really be being an asshole, you know, just really instigating, she will end the conversation by saying, this this kind of eating really works for me. Like full stop. And 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 it is the right thing to do, you know, full stop. And and you could take your arguments and your hole poking and and shove it, basically. I, I mean, I, I think it is the same for DEI work. And I, I know I said that that was my last question, but I lied. Uh <laughs> Because your essay and what we, I I will, we will make sure to include a link to it in the show notes for this episode. But we talked about effective altruism and it seems to be a very white male movement. How do you counter that? 
Yeah. I mean, I think the thing I find kind of funny about it is there's such a dichotomy for me in my experience, like interacting with effective altruism on the internet and interacting with effective altruism in person, which maybe is just like not surprising. The internet is awful. I don't know. Like, but I think it's so much more awful this year. Yeah. Yeah. And I I just feel like it really opens up the door to, to behave in ways that are not very appealing when you're anonymous, I guess. But yeah, I guess I found that the people I collaborate most closely with in effective altruism have all expressed to me a commitment to caring about the fact that the, the, the group of people is really like white and, you know, from privileged backgrounds and male, not, not to discount the, the many contributions of people of color and people from a variety of backgrounds to effective altruism. They definitely exist and, and they are really valuable. But like, you know, if you look at the demographics, it's, it's very predominantly white, male and, and, and well off. And I think, you know, I've been encouraged by talking to people at the Center for Effective Altruism and, and people at, at organizations I work closely with and, and feeling supported in the fact that I want to speak out about the fact that this is the way the community looks and that that seems really unlikely to achieve its stated goals of like achieving the best possible world if it doesn't incorporate a, a wide range of views. And so, so I think that's been good. I, I think you could definitely go onto various internet forums and see the, the darker side of, of some of that, where some people express opinions that I think are really not in line with, with what will actually accomplish the best possible world. But I guess, you know, the good thing about the community is it's really, really dedicated towards talking things out. And so I feel like I have been given an opportunity to make my case for why I, I care about doing this kind of work. And I hope that other people will listen. And I think that just by being public and honest about what I'm doing and why is, is kind of the best thing I can do, as well as doing best practices within the actual organization. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think people should definitely read your piece. It is called How Racism in Animal Advocacy and Effective Altruism Hinders Our Mission. It touches on a lot of these issues. By the way, I'm not sure I ever mentioned this to you, but in 2015, Marianne and I spoke at NYU on a panel about effective altruism. Peter Singer uh, was on the panel as well. And we were sort of the contrarians on it, which isn't to say we believe in ineffective altruism at all. (laughs) But it it was like an open-ended approach to advocacy and the holes that there might be there. So uh, maybe we can also link to that in the show notes um, to this episode if anyone is interested in this subject and wants to further explore it. But the whole thing was videoed and we we have a transcription and a full video of it if anyone's interested. Okay, but enough about me. I want to go back to you. So Michelle, I hope you stay on for a few minutes to chat with me for the flock bonus content but could you please tell our listeners how they can find Wild Animal Initiative and support your efforts? Yeah, our website is www.wildanimalinitiative.org and you can find our research content there and some uh, FAQs. And also we're on Facebook and you can donate to us through either of those methods as well. Well, I fully support that. I hope that people listening to this support your efforts because you're doing something that that it's great to know you're the person spearheading that effort, you know, like someone who, who is really caring about not just how to manage wild animals from like a perspective of what will benefit the humans, but what will benefit the animals themselves and coming at it from the mindset that you are clearly bringing to this movement is so important. I wish there were like a a thousand more of you, but I'm, I'm, 
gratified. I'm happy that there is you, Michelle. And I, I'm grateful to you for all of the time you've spent with us today on our hen house. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's really sweet. <laughs> If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. I tried to improve my health through veganism, but it made my life so much worse. This charming little article is by Kate Mulvey for The Telegraph in the UK. I guess Veganuary is making them pretty nervous <laughs> for the people who like to eat meat. This year, of course, a record 500,000 people signed up for, for Veganuary. And uh, she starts off by saying that many of us are embarking on Veganuary in a desire to be healthier, save the environment, or even just to lose weight. You know, you really know that they're not going to be on the side of veganism when they don't even mention the animals. They, they just don't really like think about the animals. Yet, we should be careful what we wish for. Because she believes, and this is from her personal experience, that a serious lack of vitamins, minerals, and omega-3 fats in our diets results from going vegan. She knows this because in 2019, she went on a strict vegan diet. Now, you really got to wonder what this strict vegan diet was. Like, what was she eating? Well, she does go on to tell us a bit. And it was to cure her migraines. And uh, because she had heard that meat, chocolate, and cheese could be migraine triggers. Nothing about anybody else or the planet. <laughs> I mean, not that migraines aren't a pretty bad thing. They are. But uh, I'm not sure that I've ever heard that going vegan will cure them. Uh, what about you migraine sufferers out there? Are they over? Well, anyway, as I said, she wasn't really following just a vegan diet. It was a strict vegan diet. After following it, she was not only thin and gaunt. Uh, yeah, <laughs> not the vegan diet I'm following. But she permanently lost hearing in one ear. Well, that's a new one. <laughs> I haven't heard that one before. And she says this, however, was not conclusively because of veganism, but a speculative association between a virus I have permanently in my body and the deficiency of several essential nutrients. You want to bet some editor made her add that paren? According to her, that everyone who wants to go vegan is this is what they're doing. They're they're looking at beautiful health bloggers and hip celebrities, and so they're all rushing to fill their stomachs with nut rissoles. What are rissoles? I don't even know. And smashed avocado. Well, smashed avocado, I, I, I don't know. doesn't sound that bad. She also did a lot of um, vegetables, which, you know, I don't know how she was missing a lot of vitamins and minerals if she was doing a lot of vegetables. And birch juice. Birch juice, what the hell is that? But she continued to lose weight at, a, at an alarming speed. You know, obviously she wasn't, she wasn't eating properly. She was also being affected psychologically. There is hard evidence that the joyful response to food gives rise to better health. Uh, you know, honey, if you get joy from eating dead animals, like uh, you have bigger psychological problems than whatever it is we're, we're bothering you about eating some vegetables. Sitting down to a plate of grass. This was, you know, 2019. Like, like 
Where was she getting her vegan diet from? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And then she goes on to mention that her doctor said her, her deafness in one ear, which unfortunately she, she did incur, and apparently it is permanent, and we have absolutely no reason to believe it has anything to do with her diet. She asked her doctor if it had been caused by her low level of vitamins and iron. Like, why couldn't she get vitamins and iron on her vegan diet? Like, this is so crazy. This is a major newspaper. And her doctor actually said that was unlikely. <laughs> so why, why are you, why are we reading this? Well, you're, you're not reading it. I'm making you listen to it. I'm sorry. So uh, she cites some doctor who explains that research has found that six in 10 people do not examine their health needs before switching to a plant-based diet. You know, if that's a problem, and it could be, you know, they should be taking their B12 because they're not eating the animal flesh of animals who took B12, which is how they get B12. And, you know, and other things, it's always good to watch your diet. Well, then why not tell people to do that? They're not going vegan. Criminalizing certain foods. Since when did eggs become a nutritional no-no? I mean, I've been around for a while and eggs have been considered a problematic food for just about as long as I can remember since they since they found out about cholesterol. And cutting out entire food groups as a route to optimum health can make us ill. This is such nonsense. And then they have comment section. And this is how they introduce the comment section. This is this is how they're going to get a really fair response. Have you tried a vegan diet and struggled? Tell us in the comments section below. Oh, my God. I didn't read the comments. Well, I read a few of the comments. They were pretty ugly. But then there were a few good ones. You know how comments go. Don't read the comments. All right. From meetingplace.com, it's finally over. So what do we do now? Well, he's referring to 2020, of course. This is the uh, Meet Your Markets column by Matt Craves. As he points out, 2020 seemed to be the year when beef became the whipping boy of scientists and nutritionists alike in their condemnation of its production and consumption. Actually, it's been going on for a while. And I wouldn't say it's a whipping boy. I would say it's the perpetrator. But anyway, that is where we need to effectuate a change. So he's really concerned that beef seems to be suffering even more than it was before the pandemic. As you know, they point this out like there's a column like this every week any place. Our response to the attacks by the meat naysayers has been almost strictly reactionary. They keep wanting meat to be taking a positive approach, and they just never do it. Like, if they can't do it, <laughs> like, why not do it? But he has a new idea. This is his new idea. In his view, this positive approach should be should start with how all parts of our industry can positively affect climate change. And what is really hilarious here is that he spells effect with an E, so which actually so it actually says how they can create climate change. Well, anyway, um, th- th- that loses its humor if you're not looking at the article. I think with an incoming administration effectively raising the visibility of curbing climate destruction by elevating to cabinet level status a climate czar, we face a future of either defending ourselves against attacks or leading in the effort to stop our climate from deteriorating. They're talking about beef, guys. <laughs> what? So these are his solutions. He wants the industry, the meat industry, to change their transportation fleets to a completely biodiesel powered one. I have to admit, I don't know a lot about the the climate effects of biodiesel, but biodiesel is, uh, you know, obviously a a fuel that depends on the meat industry since it uses, I think, among other things, it uses fat, animal fat to create energy. So that's great. You know, obviously they're going to be in favor of that. He also wants to find a cure for the um, global 
greenhouse uh, gas that are caused by belches, cattle belches. Okay. With a strategy of curing or at least curbing these two, we could bring consumers back to beef. They genuinely want to eat more beef, but are swayed by those who shame them into eating replacements with a strategy of attacking beef's climate-altering production methods. Yeah, they maybe they do want to meet, eat beef, maybe they don't. But maybe they don't want to lose the planet. We can change this perception with changes in our methods. Yeah, you might be able to change the perception. Doubt you'll be able to change the actual truth. Fired Tyson managers, betting pool stories distorted. This is from Drovers. Now, like this was months ago, or maybe it wasn't. I can't keep track of these days and neither can anybody else. But, you know, when this story came out about how these managers at Tyson, one of the Tyson plants, had a betting pool about which workers would die first. And so after this really long time, the former plant manager, Tom Hart, said, nobody bet on how many team members would become sick with COVID-19. That's how they call, that's what they call their employees. They're employees who get paid crap and aren't cared for in any way. They call them their team members. It's a team I sure don't want to be on. Didn't happen, never happened. Not clear why they didn't say it didn't happen until now. But what he says is that we did have a pool. Or the, the night manager said we did have a pool. And it was a pool saying our results, as far as positive cases, would be better than the community. It had nothing to do with how many people got sick or anything. We thought we did a really good job, and we thought our positive rate would be better than what was out in the community because of all the mitigation we put forward to keep everybody safe. And so they created a betting pool on that. Yeah, and they have this really, really nice bridge they want to sell you guys, if you want to look that up. Oh, my God. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and you're able in these difficult times, you can support us by joining our flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at at ourhenhouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, and to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Podcast Haven for their work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez. We will be back next week with a brand new show. So don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Flock member, remember to check your email or the Flock Facebook group on Tuesday for your bonus content. And join us on Fridays for Flock Fridays, where we do some really cool Zooms that you'll want to join. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Jasmine Singer, and be safe out there. Social distance, stay home, wash your hands, and listen to podcasts.